Welcome to Bible study here at St. Paul's. I'm Lawton Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be diving a little bit further into the gospel of Luke this morning. We'll be starting at verse 29. But first, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank and praise you for this day, this time and space to gather around your word. I ask that you would open our hearts and minds, uh, lead us to see what you have to teach us this morning, open our hearts so that we can understand it and take it out into our lives this week. Bless our time together, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. It's good to see everybody, and it's good to be here with you again. It's been a few weeks since I was in here. As I said, we're going to start at verse 29. From what I hear, you ended at verse 28 last week, so that seems like the logical progression here since we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And this first section is called the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. And that's just a handful of verses long. So I'm going to read that to you, and then we're going to fill it apart a little bit. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgments with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So as we recognize throughout Jesus' ministry, wherever he is at, you find the crowds of people. If you're looking for Jesus, just for, look for where everybody's gathered around. They're gathering around him, and he speaks these words to them. And this is really a response to a challenge. So if we turn back to something you discussed previously, verse 16 of the same chapter, chapter 11, verse 16, it says, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so this is kind of Jesus' response to that challenge of people continually seeking signs from him. Uh, and he starts out with some stinging words to them. <laughs> this generation is an evil generation, uh, which that's not going to land well. In fact, if I started my sermons preaching, this generation is an evil generation, it probably, you guys would probably give me some pushback, right? But Jesus, he's, I mean, he, he comes at him, he speaks the truth in love. And here he opens with this, talking about, it seeks for a sign. You guys want a sign, and no sign would be given to it except for this sign of Jonah. And so, we're familiar with Jonah's story, right? We know that God calls Jonah to be this prophet to go to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah's not really, he's not really keen on this idea. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and so he tries to escape from the presence of God, thinking that somehow, if I can get far enough off, maybe God can't get me. And so he gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, and if you're if your geography from then is is not as not as uh, sharp as the scholars, because I had to look up again where Tarshish is, 
It's actually, it was over on the Iberian Peninsula. So that's like present-day Spain and Portugal, way to the west. And then today, if we were to look on today's map and figure out where Nineveh is at, that's in Mosul, Iraq. So that's way to the east. So this is really far apart. And so he is trying to get away from God. And this sign of Jonah uh, kind of parallels a little bit with Jesus, right? Not the same, but there's a little parallel here. Jonah gets on the boat, and he's heading over towards Tarshish. This storm comes up. The sailors eventually figure out, hey, this is Jonah's God that's afflicting us. And so Jonah's off the boat into the water. A fish swallows him, spits him on dry land, and he heads over to Nineveh. Right, And the parallel here is that he's in the depths, in the darkness of this fish, right? And, and from there, there's a little change of part on Jonah's part. Jesus descends into the grave. Now, here's the difference, right? Jonah's going into the belly of the fish, and this is a period of kind of reflection revelation for him, whereas for Jesus, when he descends into hell, that's the beginning of his exaltation, we say. That's like the victory lap. He's died. He's heading, he's heading through hell. He's down there saying, guess what? You guys are done. The war has been won. There's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, but there is a parallel in the three days and in that deliverance. Jonah is not, not really keen on going to the Ninevites and prophesying to them because they are Assyrian. And for a short period of time, actually, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And we're not really at the exile from the Assyrians yet, but we're pretty close. And so he's reluctant. And so he goes to the Ninevites, says a few short words. That's all we have recorded for us in the Old Testament. And the king of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh repent. He puts on sackcloth, he sits in ashes, the king does, and the people of Nineveh repent. And so... Jonah. And then we move on in the text here. We see this queen of the south will rise up at the judgment, right? Queen of the south. Have you ever heard that word, anyone? The queen of the south is a reference to the queen of Sheba. And if you were to go back at the Old Testament, you can find the interaction that Jesus is referring to in 1 Kings chapter 10 or 2 Chronicles chapter 9. And so, the queen of Sheba has heard about Solomon's wisdom and his wealth and the things that he's done in his kingdom. And she's like, I've got to go see if this is, is all the things I've heard. And so she comes up there and she meets Solomon and sees everything and, and realizes, oh man, like it's even better than I thought. Like this is, this is crazy. And in the second Chronicles passage, she praises God. And so we've got this interesting Interesting thing happening here with Jesus calling out these two stories from the Old Testament and these two people groups from the Old Testament. And that's because he's speaking to this generation, these people that have grown up in the synagogues. They've been taught by their rabbis all these things. They're God's people. They know what God's plan is, or so they think. The Ninevites were Assyrians. The Queen of Sheba came up from somewhere, probably Ethiopia, way down in Africa. These are both Goyim. They're Gentiles. They're not a part of God's chosen people. That's interesting. 
What's more, Jesus uses this language of something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jonah may may have been a bit of a xenophobic nationalist. Maybe that's too extreme. Maybe someone will give me pushback on that. But he did not want to go to the Ninevites. They were those other people. They were the Assyrians. I don't want any part of it. I want to be here. This is, you know, that's not what I want to do. But God sends this imperfect prophet to this people that aren't in his chosen ethnic group at that time, right? And in a few short words, they repent. Solomon, we love talking about Solomon and his wisdom, right? He asks for the lave shomea, the, the discerning or listening heart. And we know the story about the two women and the babies, but Solomon struggled a lot. He was kind of self-absorbed. He wasn't a perfect king. He stumbled a lot. And so even in all of the wisdom that he had, this imperfect king, because of what God had done in and through him, causes this queen of an entirely different kingdom to praise God. A queen that didn't grow up in the synagogue, that didn't, you know, hadn't heard all of these things, not steeped in all of those traditions. And so here Jesus stands saying to these people that are feeling like, no, we're, we're God's chosen people, and saying, just so you know, these imperfect prophets proclaimed to the Gentiles and they repented. You guys are asking for more signs when something greater than them is here. And what's that greater thing? You guys have been working through, we've been working through this gospel. Look, what are some of the things that we have seen Jesus do that, that we have heard him do? He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing. Just before all of this, he casts out a demon. He's doing some pretty miraculous things. So instead of this imperfect prophet, we have the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king that's walking around amongst them, teaching and preaching and healing and casting out demons, and they're still looking at him saying, but could you give me a sign? I just need to be really sure that this is exactly who you are. And Jesus is like, look, if you, if you don't get it, you don't get it. No sign is going to be given you except for the sign of Jonah. I'm going to pause for a minute and see if there's any comments or questions about that right there, about what I've said. Yes. Doesn't mean just those people at that time, right? It, this kind of people. Yeah. So, so the comment was that the, the, the language of this generation isn't isolated just to the people in the crowd around him or that time period. No, he's speaking in that moment directly to those people, but this speaks well beyond that. That speaks into the lives of all of the people 
as we read this, uh, because it can be very easy for us to seek a sign, right? Have you ever thought that? Like, God, just give me a sign. Like, burning bush, pillar of fire, you know, part the sea, give me something. Um, we can fall into that easily, even here today, right? And God has given us a sign. He's given us his son, Jesus, but what's more than that, he's given us his word. And as we study it, as we pray, as we meditate on what he's revealed to us, he reveals his will for our lives. That might not be as amazing as standing on that mountainside and a bush bursting into flame, but not actually burning. I mean, because that would be, that would be great. But yeah, those words go go well beyond just that first century uh, Palestine. Anybody else? Yes. You kind of touched it. See, the Jonah story is a lot about subtlety of God leading his guidance. Yeah. And and well being to you if you try to go. <laughs> yes. But the subtlety of God. I, I do hear me. Open. Listen. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the comment was the story of Jonah that we've touched on has a lot to do with the subtlety of God guiding us in our lives and being, being open to what he's saying to us, right? And about it being bigger than just us. I think that's, that's really insightful. Yeah. Jonah's concerned about what his needs or his wants or his desires are, right? I don't. The Ninevites aren't nice. I don't want to go over here. I don't want to travel across this desert to them. So I'm going to Tarshish. I hear the sun coast of Spain is great in the summer. So that's where I'm heading. I mean, mainly just because that's where the boat's going. But yeah, God, God leads and guides. And it takes, uh, it takes some spiritual maturity to be able to step back and let go and let God and say, what is it that you would have me do, even if it's not something I may want to do in that moment? And understanding that God's will is always good for our lives. That doesn't mean that all of the things are good in our lives, right? There's that Romans passage that he works for the good, not he works good for all, right? Rough stuff happens. In this world, there will be tribulation, we read in John, that Jesus spoke. Anything else before we move forward? I love your comments. Helps me learn and grow, too. Thank you. All right. Hearing none, we're going to step forward into the next handful of verses here, talking about light, verses 33 to 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness." If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So we've got some light language here. Lots, lots of light language. Um, and 
what Jesus is conveying in these words to them is that the gospel, right? We're talking about the light of the gospel that's shining. And this comes through Jesus. And he's, he uses this reference to a lamp and to the eyes. And I'd like to talk about the eyes first. And when you think about your eyes, what are your eyes? What, what is the purpose of that organ? To see. It takes in the light. And so as I look here around the room, and I see we have all these banners on the wall for different Lutheran schools in the area in their various school colors. That light is reflected off those banners, comes into my body through my eyes and my optic nerve and my brain. Say, oh, St. John's Cougars, orange and blue. That light comes in and I can see it. But what happens? What happens? If my light-receiving organ is sick or injured, what if I develop cataracts or macular degeneration or glaucoma? You know, my son Jonathan has, uh, he's got a pretty strong prescription for his glasses. And if he doesn't have those glasses on, it's a rough day at the office. In fact, when he was young, before he got glasses, we didn't realize he struggled to see. But we had to visit the doctor an awful lot, and he was stitched back together an awful lot to the point where it was almost, it was just kind of like, wow, this is another Tuesday. We're getting more stitches until we realized that his organs for receiving light couldn't see what was there. He couldn't even see mulch on the ground. Uh, and so when those are damaged, we can't, that light doesn't enter in. We can't decode the message that is out there. We couldn't read God's word. And so this light receiving organ that Jesus talks about here, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. And then the parallel when it's bad, right? What does he say? When it's bad, your body is full of darkness. And we can think about this as a singular body, right? I'm kind of describing it biologically. But I'd also like you to see this passage as referring to us as a body of Christ. Um, we have that language also in the New Testament, and that's so important. You're going to hear me like talk about this a whole lot. Because, yes, I am a believer in Jesus. He has called me to faith. But I am a believer in a body of believers because he created us for community. And so the same here. When I read this language, we are... We are the body of Christ. He is the one that's the source of that light of the gospel that shines into our lives, into that eye, and fills the body with light. That's so important, you guys, to understand that he is the source of it and that we as a body keep that eye healthy. And how do we do that? Because there was a quote I read, actually, and I wrote it down because I would not memorize it in short time. Uh, but referring to this kind of, how do we keep the eye healthy? The baptismal teaching and instruction that bring people into the household of God must be kept pure and clear. If Christian doctrine and practice are clouded, polluted, or obscured, the gospel will not be able to illuminate the whole body of Christ. 
and the body will suffer darkness. So those words were written by Dr. Just. So he, uh, he wrote the commentary on Luke. Uh, very, very wise, faithful theologian. And what this is getting at is not that we should hide out in the rooms of the scribes all day and just pour over God's word and what people have written about it. Should we be in God's word? Absolutely. Should we spend time there? Oh, yes, daily. But we should also be out with that because a part of this is as we spend time in God's Word, and for you guys on the radio, I'm pointing at my Bible, as we spend time in God's Word and we understand more and more His will for our lives, as we understand more and more of His plan for all of His creation, it shows us what that actually means for us as a body of Christ in us as individual Christians stepping out into our lives and how that light then shines through us, fills our body with light here. And then as St. Paul's Lutheran Church Christians stepping out into West County or wherever it is you're at during the week, how that light shines through us into the world around us with all of those people that God places in our midst, whether it's at work, whether it's at the grocery store, at school, in car line, in traffic, wherever. And that's so important. And that actually takes me back up to the, the top of this section where it talks about the lamp in the house. Right? It's, uh, Jesus says... No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who may enter may see the light. So when I first started at the fire department, when I was doing my training, we would put our masks on, and inside of our masks, back then we just put plastic grocery bags, so you couldn't see anything. And you had to learn how to find your way through a building that wasn't on fire, because that's pretty important. It's really hard. Even once you've been doing it for a lot of years, it's really hard, especially when it's on fire. It's, it, it's just never a natural feeling. And so that's in buildings that we don't know. And I want you to imagine, just close your eyes for one second and imagine stepping into your house where you know where the furniture's at. Can you walk with your eyes closed in your house from your front door all through your house without tripping over something, without falling down and getting hurt? Probably not. Please don't try that if you're at home. Just imagine it, right? And so we're talking about people that enter the house here. And so if I can't make my way blindfolded around my own house, how do I expect someone who's never been in the house before to walk through that house blindfolded? They're not going to make it. <laughs> It's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like, not good. And so that's this other part of it. When that light of the gospel is shining from Christ through us, then when we meet people that don't know who Jesus is, or people that maybe have a bad interpretation of who Jesus is, they don't really understand his love for us. If that light's not shining when they walk in amongst us or when we walk amongst them, they're going to trip and fall and they're going to miss seeing Jesus through us. Right? 
And understand, as I say, this, this is my disclaimer, this is, this is all something that we're walking in from salvation. This is something we walk in joyously because we know what's been done for us, that our salvation has been completely accomplished by Christ, and that that light shines through us. Not, we're not doing it as a part of a checklist to be like, all right, God, you know what? I had the lamp on the stand for three people today. I'm good. I'm done. Here I go. Just a joyous part of who we are as Christ's followers in this place. Uh, and so when that light receiving organ is healthy, when that light is shining in the body, when that lamp is on a stand, not only are we able to be centered, we can see that source of light and realize that it's not us, but then the people that walk into the house amongst us can see that source of light and recognize it for what it is. Yes, Ruth. The eye is the window to the soul. The eye is the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the eye is the window to the soul. So, I mean, that whether light or dark, people can see that. Yes. Any other comments on that section as we're paused here for a moment? No? All right. So I want you guys, I really, I really want you to, to think about what that means, that lamp on a stand. Maybe as you turn on that, that nightstand light this week as you're waking up in the morning, or as you, you, you turn on that under-counter light in the kitchen when you're trying to get to the coffee maker and thankful that that light's there so you can turn that on and, and, and get that coffee brewing first thing in the morning. Think about that. Remember that you're not the source of light, but without that light, that coffee maker, your glasses on the nightstand, you know, any of those things, the keys into the lock when you're coming home, if that porch light's not on, it's harder to find your way. And so Christ, the source of light, shines through us as true believers. All right. So we're going to move forward to the next section. We're almost to the end of chapter 11 here. Uh, and this is grouped together. There's a bunch of woes here. There's six of them, three to the Pharisees and three to the lawyers. And so I want to, we're going to read through the woes to the Pharisees, and we'll stop there, talk about that for a bit, and then we'll go on to the woes for the lawyers. So starting at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking... A Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, that you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. 
So Jesus is speaking to these crowds that are gathered. And one of the Pharisees wants him to come and eat with him. And in true Jesus fashion, he's going to go and eat with him. He's going to break bread. Um, and he's a rabbi, so there's kind of a tradition here. You invite the rabbi into your home, and, and he's going to teach you some things. There's already some friction going on here. The teachers of the law are already not really fond of Jesus. We've, we've had some challenges. There's some friction here. The relationship needs some work. So Jesus goes in, and they sit down for dinner. And he doesn't wash his hands. And shocker, the Pharisee is astonished. And I'm astonished too, but that's just because I understand germ theory a little bit, and I want clean hands when I go to eat dinner, right? Uh, the same reason I say to my boys, did you use soap? I mean, not so much anymore, but when they were younger. But that's not the reason the Pharisee is shocked here. The Pharisee is really upset about this because this is a part of their ceremonial laws. Like, this is something you do. You, and the word is baptize, wash before meal. And Jesus doesn't do this. And this is that teachable moment that Jesus brings in because he, he knows this is going to happen. If I don't wash my hands, this guy's going to freak out because this is just not how you do things. Uh, and so he responds and he hasn't really lightened up his tone at all. And so he, he looks at these Pharisees and say, says to them, you guys cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but on the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. It's a great way to start a dinner conversation. I don't suggest it, but it'll make it lively. And so he says, you want to make sure all the outside stuff is good to go. You want to to make sure that the things that people can see, you put good construction on it, you know, it's not the same, but when, when my kids were little, I can remember you're going to church, you're trying to get everybody to church, and it's like chaos in the house and chaos in the car, and you hit the parking lot, and you're like, all right, smile. Everybody's in a good mood, <laughs> right? Everybody needs to think that this was like the Cleaver family getting ready for church this morning, right? Not, not exactly the same, but I just, it makes me chuckle a little bit thinking about that because I can remember those years of, of chaos, right? They're worried about what people can see. And Jesus says, but as alms, give those things that are within. And he's going to drive a little bit more at that here in a moment. And behold, everything is clean for you. And when I read that, when he's talking to the Pharisees, I go back to Isaiah that, that concept of all of these things are like filthy rags, right? These gifts are like filthy rags, our works are like filthy rags. And so everything in us, with this original sin that we're born into, we're, we, we, we confess we're sinful and unclean, and that's from birth. I don't have anything good to bring to the Lord's table apart from what he has poured into me. Apart from his Holy Spirit at work in me, I don't have anything. I'm I'm devoid. I'm an empty jar of clay. And so what Jesus is getting at is this is this is an inside. This is a heart change thing, you guys. This isn't about you making sure that you have enumerated the Ten Commandments I gave you into 613 different rules so that you make sure you don't break one of the ten. You guys are so focused on the letter of the law that you've totally missed the spirit. 
And Jesus says this to them and then lines up these woes. And as with most things, when we're reading God's word, we really need to know a little bit about the original context in order for it to make sense. Because Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue, rue, which is some kind of like evergreen herb, maybe a little bit like rosemary-ish, um, every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You read that, and you're like, okay, Jesus, I, I need to know more about what the herb garden has to do with the Pharisees and me not washing, you know, not washing my hands, right? Well, the Pharisees were so concerned with how everyone else views them. They were so worried about the perception of the outside world on them that they made sure that they even tithe their herb, herb gardens. My minute, got to make sure I tithe off my minute, off my rue, off my rosemary, all of those things. Basil too, don't miss it. Got to tithe off of it. Is there anything wrong with tithing off your herb garden? No, there's nothing wrong with tithing off your herb garden. That's a wonderful thing to do if you're so moved to do it. Jesus isn't saying don't tithe off your herb garden. He's saying you shouldn't be doing that because the reason you're doing it is so you can say to everybody, you know how awesome I am? I tithe off my herb garden. They're harder. It is not in it. They're not cheerfully giving back from the gifts the Lord has given them. They're giving those gifts so that other people will see it. They're giving those gifts so that everyone will say, man, you Pharisees have it all in line, all figured out. This is great. And that's a problem, brothers and sisters in Christ. That is not, not what we're supposed to be doing. And he continues this, this conversation on here. The second well, you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And this is just kind of building upon that idea of tithing. They want people to be patting them on the backs. Their, their religiosity has been so twisted and so tainted by their own sinful desires that what they're, I mean, they're just worried about what everybody else is going to say, what everybody else is going to perceive. They're not even focused on what God thinks about this. They're not focused on what his promises are to them in the Old Testament. It's all about them. And if we remember remember our our history right the pharisees they didn't they weren't even around until about 200 years before jesus was born they rose up because there was all this hellenistic influence this greek influence in palestine the romans were there as rulers now and so the entire goal of the pharisees they weren't actually this major political power their goal was to to keep judaism safe from outside influence. They were essentially saying, make Judaism great again. That's what they were about. Make Israel great again. That's what their goal was. Their entire goal was, I need you guys to follow all the rules and do all the things and don't let the Greek or the Roman influence or any of these other outside influences come in because if you mix with any of that stuff, well, it's going to tarnish all the things that God has promised. 
It's gonna, none of this is gonna make sense. So you better not do it. That was what they were after. And that's a, that's a dangerous thing because it leads down this road to self-righteousness. I'm doing all these things so that none of this comes in. Now, does that mean that I should just go off and, you know, do whatever the Greeks are doing? No, not a great plan. Not what I'm saying, but their focus was so much on themselves and what they were doing to make Israel great again. They were missing what God was actually doing amongst them. And so he gets to this third woe. This third woe here in verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. There's a couple things going on here, and this is like, this is just a stinging statement to Pharisees. On the one hand, an unmarked grave, do you know where, if, if there's an unmarked grave in a field, do you know where it's at? You have no idea where it's at, so you just, you walk over, you're forgotten. That person, whoever's buried there, nobody knows they're there. And so in one sense, Jesus is saying, unmarked graves, once you're gone, you're gone. Always remember who you are. And that hurts, right? For people that want a claim, that want to be greeted in the marketplace and have that best seat in the synagogue, that want everybody to know just how good they are at tithing off their herb garden, that stings a lot. But there's actually a deeper, deeper sense in these words from Jesus that I think the Pharisees probably like recoiled from tremendously, even more than just that thought. You see, in, in Israelite law, in Jewish law, contact with a dead body renders you unclean. You're defiled by that for seven days. And so the Pharisees, when you hear this, if you're an unmarked grave, and I'm an Israelite that walks over that an unmarked grave, I've just been defiled without even knowing it. I've been exposed to that unclean thing. And so as Jesus says this to the Pharisees, it's like saying, you guys are out here among the people, and they're passing by you. You are the thing that's defiling them, and they don't even know it. That hurts. For these people that want, in their minds, they're wanting to do the right thing. They're like, we've got to do these things because if we don't, all is going to be lost. And then here's Jesus saying, by the way, you are the defiling agent in all of this. You are creating an uncleanness among the people, and they don't even know it. You're supposed to be teaching them, and yet you're not. You're leading them astray. And so as he's speaking this to the Pharisees, I mean, you get invited to dinner, and then you say, by the way, you guys are the worst. What are you doing? Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. And so the Pharisee, you know he's upset. He's uncomfortable. We're going to see in the, the closing couple of verses of, of chapter 11, this is kind of another one of those pivot points in Luke's gospel where you look and say, yeah, the crucifixion is probably inevitable at this point because these are some stinging words. So before we move on to the lawyers, does anyone have any insights, any comments, thoughts? Hearing none, we're going to move forward. 
So the next few verses here, we look at the lawyers because they don't want to be left out. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. They killed them, and you build up their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. But he doesn't let up. The lawyers are feeling a little bit little bit uh, put off here, right? And, and by lawyers, we're talking teachers of the law. And they're saying, but wait, 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 you're poking at him, but I'm feeling the pressure of this too. Why are you doing this? Can you explain yourself just a little bit? But so Jesus looks at them and says, you guys are teaching all the wrong things. And what I mentioned a moment ago with the 613 rules, right? That's a part of this. They had taken God's law. And like a blacksmith with a piece of iron, they had heated that up and hammered that out into the shape that they saw fit, into what fit their own ends. And in so doing, they had loaded burden upon burden with people. When we think about this teaching of God, this law of God that he gave us, we know that we cannot keep it perfectly, right? Has anyone not sinned yet today? If you have it, you're doing better than me, right? But God gave us that law to show us the way he created us to live. If we kept that law perfectly, life would be good. It would be perfect, right? Unfortunately, we can't. And we see that law, and we see the promise of salvation. And, and for us on this side of the cross, we get to look back knowing how God fulfilled that, knowing that in Christ Jesus, who was true God and true man and perfectly kept the law, was the one to redeem us. But what they've done is said, no, 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 you need to keep the law. And to make sure that you keep it perfectly, we're going to do this thing called building fences. And... So if this is the rule, then we're going to make this other rule so that you don't get close to that one. And then we'll make another rule around it so you don't get close to the rule that's around the rule. And before you know it, they had built all of these rules and all of these laws for the people to prevent them from transgressing the law. And it was just onerous. It was burdensome. Things the people couldn't bear. And they had done that without lifting it in because them themselves, they felt like they were doing a pretty good job at all this. I'm pretty good at keeping God's law. 
you know? Look at my buddy the Pharisee ever eat eyes off his herb garden. That's our theme for today, tithing off the herb garden. <laughs> and so he says that to them. And then he moves into this, this next piece about the tombs of the prophets. They're talking about them being responsible for the blood of Abel and Zechariah, all of the blood that's been shed over the years. And Jesus is saying to them, over the course of the generations, God sent these prophets to proclaim his word to you. And time in and time out, you didn't listen, you killed them, you put them in the ground. And you build these tombs up because you want to venerate these prophets. And so you're like, this man, look at this prophet. He was awesome. What Jesus is saying is that in doing this, you're actually consenting. You're actually a co-conspirator with your forefathers of killing the prophets because you're still not listening to what those prophets said. You're still not open to what God has said through them about what he's doing. And so their blood is on your hands too. Those teachers of the law, that hurts. This is what they're all about. Let me teach the things that have been passed down. And Jesus is saying, yeah, their blood's on your hands. You're doing all these things, but guess what? You're liable for it, just like the ones that were standing there with that. It will be required of you of this generation, that really hurts because they're thinking about themselves. They're thinking about what's going on in their own lives, their own desires, their own wants, not about things of God. And so he takes it one step further. He talks about this, this key of knowledge. And in the scriptures, we understand uh, we've referenced this to Jesus as the key, Right? And so what he's getting at here is they've been given this key. They've been given this to steward and give to the people of God so that they can enter the house, right? So that they can enter into the family of God. So that they can see that lamp on a stand that's going to keep them from tripping. But instead of using that key to open the door, they've twisted God's word They've misinterpreted God's word, and so they haven't even opened the door so that they can see what's inside, let alone let the people that they're supposed to be shepherding in. And that hurts. That hurts these lawyers. You have hindered those who are coming. That speaks, I mean, especially to me in a role to teach and preach make sure that I'm looking at God's word and saying, what are you saying? Not what do I want you to say? Because it's really easy for me to say, what do I want you to say this morning? But that speaks to all of us. And as we read this section, especially, it can be easy for us to go, oh man, those Pharisees and lawyers, teachers of the law, they were terrible. I can't believe that they did those things. That, how could they twist God's word to their own ends? How could they be looking out after themselves and be really worried about what everybody else thought more than what God actually thought? And it can be easy to stop there. See, like, man, I can't believe those guys. <laughs> At least I'm not like them. But brothers and sisters in Christ, 
we do the same thing. If we're honest, there's a lot of days where we get way more worried about putting a good construction on what the world sees and making sure that you think you've got it all together and neglect the things underneath, the things that only God can fix, right? It's easy to put a fresh coat of paint on the walls, but if the structure's damaged underneath, it's going to fall just the same. And the beauty of this is that we don't have to do anything to fix the structure. God's love for us in Christ Jesus fixed what we couldn't fix. That underlying thing that was so broken that we were lost, be separated from him forever, he handled for us. And so as we read these words today, it can remind us that I don't need to make sure I look like I've got it all together. I don't need to be just so focused on my outward appearance of making sure that people think I'm doing all the right things for God while neglecting the heart change underneath that he's working through the Holy Spirit in my life. That is what that's about, is it? Look at the people that Jesus spent time with. Look at the, I, most of them didn't have it all together. In fact, none of them had it all together. And Jesus loved them. He taught them. He ministered to them in their brokenness. And he does the same for you and me. It's not about that outward construction. It's great if you're having a day where everything really is all together. That's okay. Don't feel bad about that. But don't feel like that's the facade you have to put on every day just so that people know that you've given enough of your mitt and your rube and all your other herbs. Understanding that through the light of Christ and Him crucified is beautiful. It's not always pretty, but it's beautiful. That's not my word. I heard that word from another pastor and I loved it. But this is why I say this is kind of a turning point. Because you get invited to dinner and you say all these things. Somebody's mad. Somebody's really mad about this because this, this means you're saying that I really don't have it all figured out. I really don't have it all put together. I'm not better than all those people out there. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Yeah. And so in our closing two verses this morning, we read, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They're ready now. They're mad. He's pulled the rug out from under them, and they want vengeance. And so that's, as we close chapter 11, really another one of those points in Luke's gospel where you say, yeah, the road is going to lead to Jerusalem, and it's not going to be pretty, but it's going to be beautiful. Beautiful for you, beautiful for me. So I know we're just a couple minutes early, but I want to see if there's any comments or questions. Yes. If it's 
they are proud of that. They're the children this, even among the most religious leaders of that day. But the question is, how do we keep from being spiritually blind? Yeah. So the comment is, isn't this about spiritual blindness of the day? And then the question being, how do we keep from being spiritually blind here? And that's excellent. Thank you. So, yeah, they are spiritually blind. They've got the Torah. They've got the prophets and the Psalms. They can read all of that and see what's there. And they can make their checklist. But spiritually, they've missed the point. And so for us today, this is a part of it. I love gathering with you guys here, studying God's word. Being in community together, that's a big part of it, around God's word and spending time in it. But you can also spend time in God's word and misinterpret it, twist it to your own ends. And so that is where both prayer and Christian community come in. When we pray, we lift things up to God, and we leave those things at the foot of the cross, it becomes a little easier to see where he's at work in our lives and how, not perfectly clearly. But when we're surrounded in Christian community, and I am spiritually blind to something that's going in my life, Maybe Brad can say, hey, pastor, I noticed this thing. And I can go, oh my gosh, thank you, I missed that. There's, there's no perfect way, and we're never going to be perfectly, perfectly able to see this side of Christ's return. But spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, spending time in community where we can both lift one another up when we need that, and also hold each other a little bit accountable when we're falling short or recognize what that is and not in a way that makes us feel overburdened by the law like, oh my goodness, how is Jesus ever going to love me now? Because there was no one that was ever at that point where Jesus had left them behind. He found them in these places that were painful and broken, but he didn't leave them there. And so that's a, great, that's a great comment in his word, in prayer, in community, so that we can be together helping one another to see that light that's on the stand so that we don't trip as we're coming into the house. really not. There's nothing you can do. In and of yourself, you're right. So the, the, the comment was, in and of, is the answer really in and of yourself is nothing you can do? You want to continue on that? Sorry? Did you want to continue? No. Okay. Yeah. So in and of yourself. So when we, if you, uh, if you take that summer at seminary and you learn Greek, which is beneficial but grueling, the word that's used in here is this necros, this dead corpse. And so we are spiritually dead and that's why we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, calling us to faith. Because where God finds us spiritually here in our sin-sick and dying state is dead. And what does a corpse do? It lies there, it rots, it stinks, it's nothing. It's not doing anything on its own. And so you're right, in and of ourselves, we're done. But 
you're a baptized child of Christ. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you live this daily life of repentance, turning away from your sin and towards a God, spending time in his word, not because I have that ability on my own, but because I have God, the Holy Spirit in me. It's a beautiful thing. You have the power of God in you. Anything else? All right. Thank you guys so much for being here. I'm going to close this with a quick prayer, and then I'll send you guys on your way. Almighty and everlasting God, I thank and praise you for the gift of your word. I ask that as we go through our week, you would lead us to read your word. Lord, to, to contemplate what it means for our lives, not what we want it to mean, but what you intend for our lives as you've revealed it to us in your word. Lead us to continue to be in Christian community, lifting one another up being there for one another in the hard times and the good times, bury us safely through our week so that that light may shine into all that you place in our lives. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.